You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. During the last episode, we left off with Maz being in hospital after having to be placed in a coma due to severe alcohol withdrawal. Today, Dana and Maz share the brutal honesty of the scary depths Maz's disease took him, while Dana speaks of her determination to fight for herself and them, even when it felt daunting. Let's get back to this couple Dana and Maz. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. You also, I hope, can give yourself credit for doing something that many of us don't do. And if we do, it's often kicking and screaming. We're not really, woohoo, let's go do this work because of the person that I love who's an addict, right? It's usually focused on them still, especially in crisis point of his medical situation, though you had this unlimited time where he was cared for, potentially right. protected yep. to the best of his ability. Yep. And I cannot imagine how terrifying that five and a half day period must have been. I'm sure it was hard before that even, but mm-hmm. that level of unknowing of how Maz would survive and come out of it. Yeah, I do think it's also important to point out I had so much in my favor. So I didn't have my own addictions to deal with. Correct. We were already empty nesters by this point. So I wasn't managing toddlers, preschoolers, school schedules, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. I have an extremely flexible job. So I literally, I went back to my team when Maz went into the hospital and I said, I guess I'm married to an alcoholic and I will be in the hospital. So, you know, text me, I'll be working, but I don't know what this is going to look like. Everybody just hang with me. Mm -hmm. And so I had so many resources and so much freedom that so many people do not have that I could selfishly go all the way inside because I could. Mm-hmm. And that is a gift that many, many people do not have. If our son had been home and 10 or 11 years old, it would have been a very different thing because I would have had to put on some kind of face yes. for him. In this case, I did not care what the hospital staff thought of me. I declined <laughs> Physically, I declined emotionally. It didn't matter to me. I thought this bill is going to be $12 million. I don't care what you think of me right now. I got to do this work. Right. Again, you give a lot of credit. Uh, That's not the right word, but like you still did it, Dana. Yes, I did. I did. So take that and and feel like, wow, because that is a wow that you did that soul searching work because You know, I like to think of myself as being very willing to do work, been in recovery, done some tough stuff. When I was with my partner, who was an, he identified as compulsive rather than addicted. When I was with him, even when he dumped me, 
I'm still fixated on him so that I didn't have to do my work. Right. So you get to own that even though Maz is laying there and the circumstances are dire, you are able to somehow take the the gift of that time, put a boundary up with work and do some self-reflection. That is a characteristic of you that is impressive that I hope you can take for yourself. Mm. All right. I will take it. Thank you. you. And I will say, if you were to read that journal, you would go, oh, she's mostly mad at him. I mean, it's like, (laughs) oh, let's be clear. It wasn't like, and here's another area I could get better at. I had a lot of anger to to work through before I sort of reached this new, you know, sort of Zen place. And to say that I was Zen then or now is a gross overstatement of the word. But I also think that speaks to the truth of the work. And Maz, we're coming to you because I do want to get some input from you on this, that we have to do almost a clearing house of Mm. the wreckage to get to where we are. Mm -hmm. And you weren't focused on him. It was an ideal time to just, I call vomit, vomit on the paper, all the ugliest of stuff. Wouldn't hurt him. Wasn't hurting you. Yes. And gave you some space from that intensity to be there for Maz in a different way when he woke up. Yes, absolutely. I could not have set my anger aside long enough to have the really, really dear and precious memory to me of when he finally did come back to the present. And I said to him, do you know who I am? Because he hadn't known the day before. And he said, yes. And I said, who am I? And he said, well, you're Dana DelVal. And I said, who am I to you? And he said, you're my wife. And I just, you know, I couldn't have appreciated Mm -hmm. the beauty of that if Mm -hmm. I had only been consumed with fury. Yes. So it was a present. It was. It was a real gift to both of you. So, Maz, you're the gentleman on the bed, right? You're the one whose disease took you to a depth where you were physically compromised significantly. You nearly died. Mm-hmm. Dumb question. Ever in your script of your life, when you were taking the one drink, did you ever think that you would get to the point that it would take you to that place? Absolutely not. I never thought about it. Even when I knew there was something wrong with me and I was ignoring it, another part of me was thinking, well, it's not too bad. Mm. You're not doing anything wrong because you're not, right. everything's working. Well, not everything, nothing was working, but I thought everything was working. Right. So that denial kept it from ever being as bad as it really was. Was the consequence for you or the bottom for you a physical one? That's what had to get your attention, or that's what it took at this point to get your attention in the illness? It wasn't just a physical one. I, I think I was lucky. I was sober two weeks before I went to rehab. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, usually if you do your 28 days in rehab. They split it into time sections. The first third of it is getting you sober. The second third of it is, all right, you're sober. How are you thinking? And the last third of it is, this is what you need to do if you want to stay sober. So I had two weeks before I went into hospital and I started doing a lot of reflections and things in my recent past that I was piecing together these things. And I thought, well, so here I am. 
two days before the week that I can't remember when I was in a coma, they kept asking me how much I drank, and I kept saying I have a drink or maybe two a day. So they said, well, judging by your blood work, you're either an alcoholic or you've got leukemia. So we'll have to do a bone biopsy. I said, well, we better do a bone biopsy because I don't drink that much. So I let them drill a hole in me because I wouldn't admit I was an alcoholic. I'm out. For the audience out there who love people with this illness, that is so important to hear. That the disease is so manipulative, even for the person that has it, to go along with that type of invasive procedure rather than have you admit that there's a problem or that you drink more than you're telling them. They had me lined up for a liver biopsy and a kidney biopsy. And I thought, yeah, bring it. There's nothing wrong with me. And they were going to do that. But I, I'd actually lapsed into a or was put into a coma by then because I don't remember any of this. But Dana went off and said, I'll see you in a bit. And that's the last thing I remember. I, I kind of must have had some kind of psychotic break in the meantime. And the, the next thing you know, I was trying to work out where I was and, you know, didn't realize it had been gone a week. Yeah. So DTs? Yeah. Withdrawal? Psychosis? Enormous psychosis. Incredible. I've never seen anything like it. So, yep. And then seizures when the alcohol is coming out. Yep. Okay. So we're talking chronic, late stage alcoholism. Yes. So you come to mm-hmm. having no memory, whereas Dana's witnessed it all and the medical staff. And they don't have to do these other biopsies because it's evident. They've figured it out. Yeah. When you come to, what do you feel? What do you experience? What happens to Maz? I heard what happened with Dana. What happened with you? First, I felt completely numb. Mm -hmm. And then I was just grateful that Dana was still here. And then I remember I had a a roommate who looked like he was pushing 70. I could listen to him through the curtain because um, he got brought in. I think he rolled his pickup truck. I don't know all the details. So jump in if I'm getting any of this wrong. So for the first couple of days, every morning they come in and ask me, you know, can you tell me your name? Can you tell me your date of birth? Mm -hmm. Before they do anything. Like they were putting blood in me because I didn't really have any blood cells. They'd put blood in and then every couple of hours they'd take it out again to test me for everything. <laughs> but every time they did that, they asked me my name and what my date of birth was. And I knew what it was. This guy took him about four days before he remembered what year he was born. Mm-hmm. Then it took him another day or so to remember what his actually birthday was. Mm-hmm. He couldn't tell him what day of the week it was. When I left, I went to shake his hand and I said, good luck to him. And he said, I'm beyond luck. There's no luck left for me. It's too late. And that has had a profound effect on me. Because mm-hmm. he was younger than I was. Because he was younger than Dana. He looked ancient and he was, I think, 42 or 43 at the time. Oh. Yeah. So the impact was there by the grace of a higher power go I? Something like that. And I still didn't know. At the time, I thought, all right, I guess I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, well, I'm kind of enjoying being sober. And at the time, I still thought I could go off and fix this. So I was talking to a social worker, I think she was. She was. She allowed me to convince myself that if I went to night treatment, 
Like I thought I could just roll back in the work and the evenings I can go to an AA meeting and everything would be rosy and fine. Right. Dana pointed out to this last that this was not the case <laughs> and then gave me an ultimatum. She goes, I've been here with you every day. I need you to go into treatment. And I mean, go into treatment. And I said, I don't need that. And Dana said, well, think about it. Cause if you don't, then I won't come see you. And I, thought about it that night and then i thought yeah maybe dana's got a point how hard was it to draw that line that boundary for me hmm. not hard at all and you would have followed through yeah i think i, I would have I, I think she would have which um, is why i changed my mind yeah i mean i certainly had years of empty threat making behind me but one of the remarkable things about that journal journey that i took was that you can't get that real about yourself and then decide you're going to put up with garbage from anybody else. So I gave him a couple of days to, you know, get the drugs out of his system and to come back and really be as clear headed as I thought he could be mm -hmm. before I said to him, so now what are we talking about here? Right. And he wasn't glib. He wasn't boastful, but he certainly had zero interest in patient rehab. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that I didn't know anything beyond inpatient rehab. And again, I knew it from Hollywood, but I just felt like, look, I just basically peeled all the skin off my body, looked mm -hmm. at myself and put it back on you're going to do something that hard. Mm. And all I could think of was inpatient rehab. So this social worker sat down with Maz. They had this conversation. She called me in and she said, he's going to go to night treatment. And I said, no, he's not. And she said, well, unless he agrees to check himself in, there's nothing you can do because you don't have a history of physical violence as police mm. records. Oh, so you can't... Bit. You can't go to the secretary of state or whoever it is and appeal for them to mandate him to rehab. So I said to her, can you give me 10 minutes? And she said, yeah. And I walked back into his room and I like to use this phrase. I basically ripped my face off and revealed to him who I really am and said to him, you have one option here. You go to rehab or you won't see me again. You can come home, but I won't be there. And in that moment, I had no doubt that if he had said no, I would have driven home, packed up my things, taken our dog. And I don't know where we would have gone, but we would have gone somewhere. I was never, ever, ever going to have lived through what I had just lived through and let him come back in as if nothing had happened. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. How would you like to be dipping your toes in the ocean, walking on pink sands, in between activities where you get to be amongst people in recovery with AA or Al-Anon? Anybody want to get away to paradise for a retreat filled with fellowship and community? Here's an opportunity for you. Bermuda's AA Al-Anon convention will return in person and be held November 24th through 26th at Willowbank Resort on the beautiful island of Bermuda. 
Find the links for more information at www.aa.bm or just hit my show notes and the link is there. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So even though one could hear that and think, well, that was an ultimatum. It absolutely was not because you were bound and determined to follow through. Yeah. You had decided that you needed more. Yes, you wanted him to go take his skin off and deal with the truth. <laughs> it sounds like you needed some time for you. Yeah, I couldn't imagine how was I going to like manage this man at home when I wasn't smart enough to recognize he'd been an alcoholic two and a half weeks earlier. Well, I, I hadn't actually I mean, really. So you know. that felt like someone saying, here's 47 children, just take care of them. I mean, I just, it was so daunting to think about the reality of them checking him out to me and me now being in charge that if someone had said, do you think he should go to Wuhan, China? I would have said, yes. Yes, send him to China. I needed him to go somewhere so that I had more time to get my bearings. And because I didn't believe that if he came home, he wouldn't start drinking. I had no reason to believe that that wouldn't happen. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So, um, yeah. So you went to treatment. Yeah, Dana made me see sense. (laughs) I gifted him with the opportunity of the decision. I was changing my mind. Coming up with a hang on, on second thought. That was obviously the best decision. It was scary. It ended up being my 47th birthday that I went to Prairie St. John. And there's this woman said, what's your date of birth? And I said, oh, you know, today, 1970. And I said to her, well, you know, great way to be 47. And she looked at me and said, just think what 48 is going to bring. And I thought. (laughs) That was the first moment of hope I had in the entire thing. Because she said it. As if it was just a done deal. But what an amazing way to start your 48th year. Think what next year's birthday will be like. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe there is an end in sight. It was the first glimmer of hope that I had. So you go to rehab, you commit to the time, you went in two weeks sober, which you see as a gift because you were able to dive into the meat of a recovery well i thought i did i was still convinced i could still fix myself mm. and then i was getting a bit depressed because all i wanted to do was go home so i got given this assignment and i did what i yell at my students for doing i just thought i'm not doing this <laughs> so my counselor joanne bless her screamed at me and she had a hidden surprise for me because i've been there what a week maybe 10 days probably 10. So my little surprise was Dana was the first of the invited guests because everyone in the group had a, a significant other come in and Dana met everyone. And I was got in trouble, Joanne. So Joanne had a word with Dana and I about what I hadn't done because I was being a spoiled brat. So Dana and I had this very long conversation in her car in the parking lot. And I came in after getting offered my biscuits on a plate. You, you can, yeah. <laughs> Joanne ripped me a new one. I went back to my room that night and did my assignment. And that was my turning point. Mm. It took me even that long to realize there is actually something wrong with me and I really need to start listening. 
How about I need to accept help? Mm. And and that. So what I hear is your self-will, maybe your Irish stock, makes you a stubborn so-and-so. Thank you. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And your disease doesn't mind adding to that character flaw. You know, I look at my years working with clients in treatment, you would have been one of my favorites because the reality is, is the person in there we know is not the presentation of this person behaving badly. It's the disease manifesting in a man who's incredibly raw and uncomfortable, who's missing his partner and his environment he drank in, doesn't know what the future holds, doesn't know how to do life sober, and oh crap, no, not sure I'm signing up for this. You needed another reality check of the alternative. And I got it. And even Miss Joanne says to me, you know, that when I was leaving, she said, I want to talk about my favorite day with you. And I said, oh, you mean the one where I got double tagged? <laughs> she went, it worked. And yes, it did. And thank you very much. She even said, I could tell the next day yeah. there was something different about it. I always say the disease is the most formidable opponent I've ever gone up against. And if I see it that way, then by God, I have to be willing to get in the ring too. And I'm not getting in the ring to beat you as a human up, but I will tackle the disease if I have to. And not everybody has that approach or style, but that is what I believe those two did to you that day. They stood up to your disease. They called it out on itself. And yes, it's in you. And yes, it's hard. And you could have easily been like, yeah, I'm not going there. But there was something that it hooked in you, the you that wanted to be well, that gave you permission to keep going. Yeah, that sums yeah. it up really beautifully. And I think that was my anger at him that day. So I'm in this woman, Joanne's office, and he gets called in. He doesn't know I'm there. It's obviously a hard surprise. I don't really know what I'm walking into. She says to him, where's your assignment? He says, well, I couldn't do it. I had to mop last night. And she says, no, you had time. And he's got all these excuses. And it's so hard to sit there and watch my 47-year-old husband be treated like a really naughty nine-year-old. And he's making all these dumb excuses and it's embarrassing and I'm just getting more and more angry. And she finally says to him, you're a liar. You're excused. And he said, what? And she said, you're excused. And he got up and walked out and I watched him walk out and I looked back at her and she said some things to me and you know whatever. And then I was walking back to my car. And this is when we had this big conversation in my car where I again ripped my face off. And what was so infuriating to me was I felt like I was fighting. I was throwing every punch I had ever thought about throwing at this thing. And he was too cool for school. Like, what the hell? Get it together. Fight the fight. Or get out of my way because now I'm geared up. Mm. I'm not backing down now. Mm. And I would never say I'm the reason that Maz turned a corner. But I do believe that he saw in me for the first time ever a conviction of Mm. I will not go back. And it either scared him into getting around that corner, or it made him believe that he could go around the corner because 
I'll just say it. You better believe you want me in your corner if you've got a fight, because right. I'll throw the first punch every single time. I don't care who it's going to land on. Mm-hmm. I think that empowered him mm-hmm. to decide he could fight too. Matt, you'd agree? Yeah, you know, and from that day onwards, being in an AA is very sad. It's stressful. It's lonely. It's an assault on your senses because, you know, I, I wasn't the youngest person in there and I also wasn't the oldest person in there. And the more AA groups I went to, the more we talk to different people and you hear their story. I felt a bit more of a shame because I just listened to some of these people. I think, Jesus, your life is a freaking mess. And then I felt bad. What kind of idiot am I or how weak am I that I'm in the same state as you? And my life is like a freaking Harlequin romance compared to what's been going on with you. You know what I wonder? This is the problem with doing these conversations because I have so many thoughts running at me and it's which one to follow, but I'm going to follow this one. I wonder if in that car with your beautiful, committed, fiery wife saying difficult things, not easy to hear, showed you someone loved you more than you loved yourself and was willing to fight for you. So by God, it's my turn. I think Mm. so. Because I still didn't get that. I think until that point, I decided that it was still why these very nice people wasting their time and an idiot like me. Right. What a great story for the disease to keep you stuck under. Yeah. Mm. And that was the moment I thought, you know what it is, you know, get busy living or get busy doing. That's when it finally made sense. Right. And she was willing to get busy living next to you. Yeah. Then everything changed after that. In fact, a couple of weeks oh. later, when Joanne called me into my office and I thought, no, what have I done? I've been trying to do everything. <laughs> I just said, so how would you like to go home tonight and come back during the day and then be free to go home at 3.30? And I immediately went, yes. And then I thought, oh, let's check with Dana. <laughs> so she looked at me. I still think that was my final test. Because yeah. she looked at me and nodded, knowing me, going, yes, let's check with Dana. So I was actually quite worried. But when I heard Dana on the other side of the phone going, oh, absolutely, I can be there to pick him up. That was a shed a tear moment there. Actually, yeah. I've done something right. Dana's going to let me come home. At the end of all of this, you never did anything wrong. You had an illness that created ugly, damaging character changes that hurt you and the people that loved you. Yeah. Still the hardest thing, I think, to get our head around when we're living in it. I think this is the best version of me, and I think the version Dana originally met. By far the best version. By far. Well, you've said the same about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, AA is different for everyone. It was tragedy for me. I mean, there is tragedy in, in AA and rehab is some of the people in the group I was in aren't with us anymore. Right. Way younger, way older, couldn't pull it together. There's a woman there who knew what to say, everything. She was giving me advice, and I actually took some of her advice. So the two days before I graduated, she got kicked out. Somehow she managed to get hold of some drink, and then someone saw her panhandling by the YMCA. Yeah. You know, the guy that was the guy who was Quinn's age telling me everything. He actually said to me, you finally got it. I actually now believe what you're saying. You know, the day before we were both supposed to leave, he got caught with drugs. So it's just a grip that gets you. It is. Even in a rehab, if you're willing, 
you can find someone to get you something in there, you can get it. Which is why rehab, in my opinion, works when people are given the dignity to make the decision because we can't lock them away from from life, everything, right? Right. If someone's disease is going to take them out the door, it's going to take them out the door. We can definitely intervene and we do. We can offer peer intervention, staff intervention, family intervention, all of it. But if the person's disease has them, we go to Al-Anon to cope with the reality of this disease killing far too many people. And why do some make it and some don't? And if I get stuck in that, I'm in trouble. You know, it's yeah. I understood the monthly coins. We got Queen made me a display case for for mine, so I had to rejig it when I got my five year coin. But you know the stories you hear. You know, you get your one year coin, and then you hear the stories of how many people got their one year chip and then went out to celebrate. Going, surely I can have a drink now because I've been sober a year. And you know, ninety eight percent of them you know end up in a in a psychiatric unit or dead or jail. Yeah, and then they say the worst year is between one and two, and then that's why someone said to me, "You know why? That's why we have eighteen-month coins, because that's the most dangerous year." I think that, as we said, a formidable opponent. But in that same vein of the front window versus the rear view, we've got to have balance. Mm. If we're willing to go to the lengths we did to use to stay sober, we can do this. Mm-hmm. It's a hard switch to flip, but it's doable. If we have accountability and if we have resources and if we have the tools of recovery, we can stay out of the ditch. We have to use them. We have to consistently work at using them. And we have to stay out of the self-pity mm. that can rear your head of why me, why can't I? Why am I the one who made it survivor's guilt when some of the others do go? And it's a hard one to get our head around. But one of the things that I would try to work with clients who were struggling in early recovery and they lost someone who went out and relapsed and passed, what would they want you to do? Mm-hmm. Would they want your story to be different? Are you willing to work your program like your life depends on it because they can't anymore? which feels selfish and horrible, but we've got to find a way despite that to be well, because we deserve it just like they deserved it. But for whatever reason, they didn't get to have it. Yeah. I mean, it's loads of facets to this. When we were doing Daily Dose, we talked to one of our state senators who's in North Dakota. We're trying to revamp the state hospital. Mm. mental hospital mental hospital i have you know they want to have a central area in the state in north dakota for mental patients and try and centralize it and chemical addiction centers were going to be in the center of the state so everyone can get to them and he brought up this story about the difference between having it in a localized area and having it central what the pros and cons were because i went to prairie st john which is in a town that we live in mm-hmm. and there was these kids here who were three hours from home mm-hmm. and old people that were three or four hours from home. And it felt nicer to me to actually be, I could walk home if I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to it, we went to different AA meetings the whole time I was there. So you got an idea of how many different ones there were, if whatever, if, which were personal to you. Mm-hmm. But I always knew where I was. 
Mm. I was also astonished that there was this, you know, there was an extra dimension to Fargo Moorhead <laughs> that was AA meetings because they were everywhere. I thought, <laughs> How did I not know this? I've lived here since 2001. Bet you knew where every bar was. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the focus, right? When we're in it, it's the focus. When we're in recovery and we embrace recovery, wow, who knew Friends of Bill W meant people in recovery and at an airport, you can have six people at your side in 10 seconds if you announced it over the intercon system. Yeah. yeah. Who knew? I didn't know that until I was in recovery. And I think that's the thing is it's even the true the story of your counterparts in treatment who found alcohol or drugs. It's there. That's why bubble wrap doesn't work. We can't make someone safe from this disease by wrapping them in cotton balls and bubble wrap because somehow the disease will manifest a way in that person to get what they need to survive because that's what they believe they need. Yeah. So the alternative is how do I, Dana, take care of myself as a family member and step out of the way of letting Maz do what he has to do, even though I'm scared to death, he won't do it. And I don't want that outcome to be the story we live with. Mm -hmm. So how'd you do it, Dana? How did you end up going through that intensity, doing your own work, seeing him in rehab, being a part of that, but continuing to focus on you and let him have his journey? Boy, that's a great question. I don't really know. Do you have a thought on that? I guess I'll answer. <laughs> you can have your thought, but I've got one. So I'm going to speak again. <laughs> no, I, I am a acutely independent person. Mm-hmm. And, and even though we are married, I certainly do not view that as an abdication of myself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted him to do the work for him and for us. Mm -hmm. But my sense of self was not going to go down with that ship. So I tried to present to him how far I would go as an us Mm -hmm. and make it very clear that of the two of us, I would be okay without him. Mm. I did not believe he would necessarily be okay without me, which is not actually true, but it's what I believed at the time. And so I simply gave him some options and they were manipulated to some extent, but they were the options. And, you know, if he had opted to come home because he decided that two weeks of being in the hospital, half of that time he was unconscious, mm-hmm. he had decided that was enough, then that would have made a decision for me, which would have triggered a series of actions and he would be dead today. Mm-hmm. I know he would. So I think it was just a case of like when I was a young single woman faced with an unexpected pregnancy Like you just have some options. You weigh your options. You say no to some, you keep other options open. Eventually something happens, a baby is handed to you and you have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Okay. This was another one of those Mm. moments. I do not fold in times of stress and pressure. I rise Mm. and I gave him the opportunity to rise for himself, believing that that would allow us to rise as well. And thankfully, he had enough belief in himself or in me for him 
that he said yes in the moment. And then he figured it out for himself. And he really did well, figure I, it out for himself. I figured it out with a lot of help. It doesn't <laughs> matter. He did the work. What Dana just brought up, set the boundary, set the bar, what she was willing to tolerate and not tolerate. Do you think in retrospect, Maz, you started out because you desperately wanted the marriage to work, that you love your wife and you wanted to have it happen, that it started that way, that was the impetus, and then switched over to, I want this now for me? Or did you all, at that point when you made the decision to engage in recovery, go, hmm, yeah, I want this for me, no matter what? I think it started off with I wanted to stay married, and I definitely wanted to stay married to Dana, obviously. Mm-hmm. As opposed to your other wife. Yes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> really... Wow, this gets more and more interesting. Yes. <laughs> is that the queen that you referenced earlier, or is that the same one? Yeah. That needs to and I actually went to, well, if I want this, then I have to fix myself. Yeah. So it switched at some point. Yeah. It definitely switched. I watched it happen, and it happened almost instantaneously. He's not wrong when he says he got out of my car, he walked back into rehab and he was a changed man. It doesn't really matter what caused the change. What matters is that he accepted the change. And he, from that moment forward, it's not that we've had no disagreements or that we haven't had to work through things, but from that moment forward, he has been this version of himself and it has been nothing short of extraordinary there's one moment i have i don't know if you i've ever told you this so we had to go and see a marriage counselor and this guy was brilliant he was weird as hell (laughs) brilliant so in our last meeting we were supposed to meet there at one o'clock and dana was at work do you remember this day i don't know keep talking so the phone rang I picked up the cell phone and it's like Dana. I said, hey, Dave, what's up? She goes, where are you? I said, well, I'm just sitting. I'm watching a film at home. She goes, yeah. Why aren't you here? And I had no idea what she was talking about. And it's, um, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be over at Prairie St. John with you with our last session with our counsellor. I went, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. And I drove there and Dana was kind of, I wouldn't say livid. She was just was in, irritated. She was irritated. And I, I looked at her and she said, what happened? And I said, you know what? I was just sitting at home just thinking. I thought I'd put a film on. I had no idea. And I just got here as soon as I could. I, I'm so sorry. But and I thought, well, you know, I'm actually happy this happened because I drove here and if I got pulled over by the police, the only trouble I'd be in for was for speeding because I'm completely sober. And I went on and Dana looked at me. And I think to this day, she, she looked at me and went, wow, it's nice to have you just tell me the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to know that you're telling everyone the truth, too. I mean, Matt, yes. Is it nice to have your partner go, the truth, that's a fresh thing. But it's also nice to know you're not lying to everyone. Yes. And I just think that's what I got out of the look on her face. My yeah. God, you're telling me the truth. Yeah. How long did it take to look in the mirror and like yourself again? About a year. Hmm. Do you think that took getting your integrity back, like feeling like who you were was who you were? There was some solidity in your recovery and and the characteristics that that brought about? I did. A guy called Christian himself is a recovering alcoholic. He said to me when I first came back to work, he said, you've got to make a choice here. He said, because at the minute, everyone hates you. He said, you can either go somewhere else or you can stick with it and just put your head down and work through it. And if they want to talk to you, they will. And that's exactly what I did. 
That's not an easy one either. No. I've even had people at AA meetings again. How's work? Are you looking for another job? So, no, I'm gonna. I'm sticking with the one I got. That's that Irish stubbornness again. I think. Yeah. They said, "Oh, yeah. I hope it works out for you." Recovery journeys are filled with many ups and downs for each person in the family system. I so appreciate Maz and Dana's willingness to share the added challenges when doing this in a partnership. Come back next episode where Dana and Maz will continue sharing about their story and their ongoing recovery journey, which includes some interesting information about living and having fun in recovery. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.